Hi, my name is Jeremy Johnson. I'm the Vice President of Customer Experience for Project 202. And I'm Rob Peary. I'm the CTO for Project 202. All right. How's it going, Rob? Pretty good. Pretty good. I just came up from Austin and I'm now in our Dallas office. All right. Taking a nice trip back here from Seattle where I live. So around the office and, and, and through emails, we've been talking about uh, something that, that I think you phrased as beyond agile. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Yeah, sure. So uh, I think it's a really interesting kind of time in, this, in the software development space, in particular because this, this idea of agile itself is, is gaining widespread adoption. Uh, a lot of times the, the companies that previously were having tr to try to sell on these ideas are the ones coming to us and saying, hey, we need help with the transformation to this style of delivery. Uh, but that you know brings with it its own sort of set of problems. If you look at Agile as a movement, it's it's been around for probably a lot longer than you realize, um, on the order of I, I want to say 20 years at this point from when the manifesto was written, um, and an entire industry has grown up around it, interested in you know selling you certifications and offering you training classes and um, selling you certifications on top of those certifications so that you can teach your own training classes. And from an education perspective, right, the availability of those kinds of things is, is a huge plus for, for companies looking to make these transitions. But we just have to keep a clear head about the bias that's inherent in a lot of that. You know, they're, they're not the ones struggling to actually deliver systems. They're interested in moving you through the class and getting you on your way. So that's, that's sort of agile itself, um, which fundamentally is, is a mechanism for how to build things. Right? It, it teaches you how to account for the work you have left, how to track what you're doing, um, and ultimately to, to get things in production. Um, but it, what, it, what it doesn't really tell you at all is, is how to figure out what you should be building in the first place. So before we go there, let's take a little step back. So yeah, the iterative way of releasing software, and really, I, and actually you can tell me if this was in the manifesto or not, but uh, the reason you iteratively launch is in case there's a market shift or that you, you would, there would be some kind of learning that you could put back into that. Um, but I feel like a lot of companies really aren't doing that. I, th I feel like a lot of times we see organizations working in an agile fashion, but really while they're building in incremental ways, they're actually not releasing, so therefore there is no learning. Are, are you seeing the same thing? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. You know, If you look at the original manifesto, the fundamental principle that that relates to is this idea of responding to change and preferring the ability to do that over making a plan. Um, and I think that's just acknowledging the, the basic reality, right, which is that it's it's not possible. Things don't stay static for long enough to do um, ironclad long-term planning and then, you know, going down with that ship even if situations have changed. So, so yeah, I think there is this cultural element of, of absolutely, you want to break things into smaller chunks. You want to be prepared for those shifts. But if you're not actively soliciting or investigating changes in context, then you're never going to have the input to make a change. Yeah, you're prepared to change. Right. But if you're not monitoring, if you're not getting feedback, if you're not launching things even, um, you're missing out on those those decision points. Right. Well, so then let's go back to Agile as, as it doesn't necessarily have a mechanism to, to validate if you're building the right thing. So obviously it's tracking that you're building things and things are launching, but, but are they the right things? Are they actually moving the needle with the key metrics that the business is looking for? Right, and, and I think you, you, could, you can look at this iterative incremental idea and you can take sort of the fail fast, lean startup kind of idea and say, okay, well, that's the mechanism for um, not telling you specifically what to build, but at least giving you feedback and, and adjusting your path. 
Um, but I think those of us who have done a sufficient number of Agile projects, you'll see that that sort of feedback often ends up incremental, right? You're incrementally delivering and you get incremental feedback. Man, it sure would be nice if this flow had one fewer steps in it, right? Or, or this particular interaction is a little bit awkward and I'm sure our conversion is suffering because of it. Um, you, you rarely get feedback that says, this thing is a total disaster and what I wanted instead was a toaster. Um, it's not set up to solicit that kind of feedback. And so that's, that's really fundamentally where it falls down. And then you also hang out this promise of, you know, let's get faster to market, let's, let's get out there, let's start writing code. We actually have clients who come to us and are really disappointed that on day one of the project, some developer hasn't started coding already. Like, when are you guys going to start coding? When are you going to get going? Because we got to get out there so we can hurry up and fail. Like, that, that's sort of the dominating mindset. And if you, if you take a step back from that, like, I understand how people have gotten there, but it's kind of crazy. You know, it's, it, 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 like, everybody is all excited about failing. You, you even sort of see the kind of Silicon Valley startup mentality of, oh, yeah, we've got to go through two or three pivots before we figure out what we're fundamentally going to do. We're going to go out there and invest a ton of time and money, even if we're doing it in an iterative, incremental fashion, before we before we actually land on the thing that's going to work. Yeah. I actually like instead of fail fast, I like learn fast. I think is probably a better <laughs> way to put that. So. That is a little a little more charitable way of putting that. Yeah. yeah. So so fundamentally, what what we think about is th- this notion of thinking a little bit first, right? Let's let's learn some things that, that's out there to be learned, right? We're not um, having to dig um, into some fundamental truth to, to be able to make smarter decisions. Um, there's a ton of metaphors you can apply. It's fundamentally like let's, let's aim before firing, right? And, and so how could we aim? Well, in the past, that aiming has been done by the product owner, right? Or the visionary CEO of the company or something like that. Somebody has an idea and it sounds like a good idea. And the the idea is probably born of experience in a space and things like that. And so I don't want to discount those kind of things. Um, it's just that they don't scale. They don't offer predictable performance. Uh, you can have a good idea and then you might have a bunch of bad ideas. And even sort of the, the canonical, you know, platonic ideal of this visionary kind of thing, you could, you could say Steve Jobs or something like that. Apple's had a string of failed products. Yep. Um, they just happen to have had successful enough products that they have the bank bank balance to not be overly concerned by those kind of things. Well, that's where I think in larger organizations, you see where uh, they have the product owner, the CEO, they they have these ideas and and in large organizations, sometimes it's it's more difficult to get code out there, right? Maybe there's contracts, maybe there's, you know, freeze dates, whatnot. And there are a number of ways, and you know, I have a UX background and there are a number of ways that we can validate ideas uh, and generate ideas that maybe they aren't even thinking about beforehand, before they're being written, you know, before they're, they're going to, to the development team, which obviously that's when the costs increase for any potential changes. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so to me, that, that seems like there's really two aspects here. There is the, you know, programmatic validation of these ideas um, before spending money building them, even in an iterative incremental fashion. And then I think, you know, related to that, but perhaps even more important is the programmatic generation of new good ideas. Um, and, you know, for us, that, that manifests through our, our work with behavioral science, right, and, and generative observational research. Um, 
and and really adding that in as kind of the the beginning before you get to the iterative incremental churn. You know, how are we aiming? What direction are we aiming in? What do people actually need? Well, I can think about that, and and maybe I was kind of our target market at some point, and I'm informed. Um, I, I'm I'm just being a little careful. I don't want to totally discount the power of someone in the space having a good idea. Um, but people are complicated. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, let's talk about the backlog. Obviously, a kind of a core component of agile. Um, the, today, there are a lot. To, they're prioritized by what I guess pe- people's ideas, what they think is most important. Usually, nothing gets taken out of the backlog. Usually, everything goes in the backlog and it stays there forever, even if it's prioritized more towards the bottom. Like, what is there a a, a better way to to understand what you should be focusing on and and what you should be executing on? Yeah. So, so I think. You know, the, there's some interesting elements to that as well, particularly for larger companies that adopt um, Agile and are trying to transform that way. Uh, the backlog itself is, in some respects, an artifact that represents the political power in the organization, right? Things get prioritized because I know it's what my boss wants or I know it's what their boss wants. Um, and they, they likely have sound reasoning for wanting that and there's perhaps some potential business return behind it. Uh, but sometimes there are relatively opaque political reasons for for the prioritization of things. And so what we suggest is buttressing what a, what a lot of times is that subjective judgment with objective reality. And if you start with the assumption that we are building software for people, um, then understanding the needs and goals and aspirations of those people um, just seems like the responsible thing to do. And so then if we decide, great, let's understand the people that we're building for, and we sort of take that as our specification for the problem we're trying to solve, then it really naturally to me says, well, isn't there some group of practitioners who are dedicated to the understanding of people? And it turns out there is, and that's fundamentally what behavioral science is. Right. Right. Whether that's sociological, psychological, anthropological kind of um, backgrounds, that's incredibly useful. So now we have these practitioners with with totally different crafts that we need to integrate into the fold of software development. And that's partly where this beyond notion of beyond agile comes from, is it's not just um, taking your development team, but it's introducing entirely new crafts into this process, Um, which, you know, on on the surface seems, seems pretty revolutionary. But if you go back to kind of core agile manifesto principles, it's cross-functional teams. It's just we're expanding the notion of what cross-functional actually means. Yeah. So what, what does a modern uh, scrum team uh, consist of, uh, in your opinion, nowadays? Sure. So, uh, you know, I would really start with this notion of behavioral science as sort of feeding and seeding the backlog. And we do find that work is, is less iterative and incremental than you would think, right? It is very um, sequenced. Um, you are going out, you're observing people, you're synthesizing results, you're generating new possibilities of things to build. Right. And then perhaps you're iteratively validating those um, before they make it to the backlog. Um, but we do see that stripe of behavioral science, um, true user understanding, um, continuing throughout the project. I think then you combine that with traditional agile team members like your developers, your quality assurance folks, um, now, obviously, you have designers, um, both sort of interaction and visual and information architecture kind of components, and sometimes those are manifest in the same person, and sometimes those are multiple right. people. 
Um, but that is that's staying true to the to the cross-functional notion. I think the other important thing that often gets missed is that you know the business, for lack of a better kind of noun, right, wants to keep the agile team at arm's length. Hmm. Right? They they do my bidding. Right. Right. I've I've prioritized the backlog and user stories go in and production software comes out. If you really think hard about what you're trying to accomplish, you know, the act of coding something or not coding something is a business decision. Right. I, I have to be equipped to make the smartest decision about what's going to provide the most value. And so that that's a two-way street, right? That requires me as a developer to recognize that I'm also a business person. Right. But it also requires the business person to be closer to the implementation. Yeah. Right. They are a member of the cross-functional team because they have excellence and experience in a craft just the same as a designer or a developer. I feel like I've heard stories from development teams that are kind of, um, they're losing motivation for their product because they feel like they see things coming in this backlog, they're building things, but but they actually don't see effect in the business. And and, and, and that's a good point that developers often care and and want to to build things that have great effect uh, to to, to the customers or users uh, that, that are using the product. Yeah, and, and we're, we're in the situation of having to make these decisions, right? Even um, down at sort of the micro level about how I should build a feature or what toolkit I should use or, you know, getting broader what architecture I should use. And all of those things are aided by having appropriate context. And that context is, is a lot of times, you know, fundamentally, how are we moving the needle for the business? Right. And without that, I'm not going to make as good a decision. Right. Just like if I don't have technical context, you know, how many users am I expecting and what devices do I have to target? If I don't know that, I'm going to make a good professional guess. Right. But it, it may not be right. Right. And so I, I think that, you know, sort of leads to the the harder thing about agile transformations is really that that cultural idea. Right? It's not just we're going to teach everybody the the rituals, right? Which is a really fun word that I'd like to unpack <laughs> later. Um, we're going to teach everybody the rituals and guess what? We're agile now. No, like it's a lot harder than that. Right. There's the fundamental, you know, you, you put cross-functional teams together. If they don't understand and respect each other's crafts, it's not going to be successful. Right. If they don't understand that, you know, software is being written to advance some business purpose and they don't understand what that ultimate goal is, it's not going to be effective. Um, so I've heard you say uh, communication, cross-functional a number of times. So I'm assuming you think that's kind of key in this. It, it really is. I, I feel like the cultural aspect of things is almost more important than the particular practices in the methodology. And um, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm biased, but I feel like that's something we do incredibly well. Uh, it manifests as really simple things like designers and developers eating lunch together. Right. Um, but that's a hard thing to get right. Yeah. And if you've, you know, built a relatively siloed organization with distributed responsibilities, that means first off that nobody has the whole context. So it's hard right. to make good decisions. But also people don't have as much opportunity to interact. I don't understand, you know, as a siloed developer, what motivates you as a designer? I don't understand what you care about. You don't understand what I care about. So how can we, right. how can we meet? And, you know, what, That's fu- the that's funny the lunch thing. I, I usually uh, yeah any UX designer I'm like you should be having lunch with the developers <laughs> before before long after this project gets started because I yeah, I agree that that's you know we're, we're trying to bring 
empathy from from the user you know from from research activities and validation activities we want to make sure the developers understand why and, and that context and hopefully they've hopefully they've been there for for a large part of that that story uh but yeah in the end it's you know we we have to be friends yeah i mean and, in some respects uh, this is we a, have to talk, you know, speak the same language and, argument, and work together really towards that fundamentally goal. right it's, it's it's differing points of view and it's differing um areas yeah. of expertise and yeah even if we never ever talk about the project while we're having lunch the I understand you better, right? I know what you're motivated by. I know that we're on the same team here. Yeah, yeah. I'm more willing to look at the wireframe you've produced, and if I have questions, I'm going to come talk to you because you're my buddy, instead of saying, eh, you know, I'm going to just go download this toolkit I could use, and it's right. close enough. Um, and, it, and it never, you know, I don't want to suggest that that happens <laughs> maliciously, right? Some of right. it is, you know, you are teaching me to see things that I haven't seen before, and vice versa. Right. You know, designers make decisions yeah. between two or three yes. different options no. not realizing that one of them is an order of magnitude harder to build and they're not doing that right. on purpose they just don't have the context so so those feedback yeah. loops and that that communication side of things is yeah. is really important and often overlooked particularly because yeah. a consulting company can't come in and do that for you like i can stand up your your task tracking system and i can teach you how to do stand ups and right. you know if i'm an yeah. agile consultancy right and i'm selling you this stuff but I can't teach you how to like each other or respect each other. It's certainly not within, you know, the whatever three month engagement we're going right. to do together. <laughs> but, the, but the business side is just as important to that, right? Recognizing that yeah, we're doing yeah. things for a purpose and, uh, and your development teams need to be motivated right. and agile as an industry and scrum in particular right. does a lot of things to try to prevent that sort of, um, counterintuitively you know by you can't sprint all the time right so there, there's some some odd sort of nomenclature choices that have been right. made um but yeah you like you 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 as the development team don't see where things come onto the backlog you don't understand why they, they're there you have the three or four sentence description of the project that you're working on but you don't know why and you probably haven't met the person that's going to be using it um so it's really hard to, to both care and to make right. good decisions. So on the experience side, when, when we're going out and observing people, taking photos, videos, we're, we're validating prototypes, like I would, I would assume that's great information then to bring forward to the development team. And again, hopefully the development team is are part of those validations and they're, they're, they're in those meetings and they're, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's almost what a, it's like. It allows you to build empathy. The software that they're building. You understand who you're, who you're building something for and you layer in the, yeah. the business context of why we're building this thing for these people. Um, then, then you've got the totality of information and the right. kinds of things that we're able to understand by bringing in behavioral scientists um, just deepen that understanding. It's, it's not even just your typical sort of business process automation thing of, you know, you typed into one system and then you typed the same thing into another system. Maybe those systems should talk through a service interface. Like that's the obvious stuff. It's more the narrative right. that you're telling yourself about right. yourself when you're using a system. What are your goals and aspirations? You know, we've, we've had cases where we have done um, experience yeah. strategy projects for people and the outcome is actually not writing any software. It's just changing the wording of the marketing message um, to better appeal to the target user base. And it's had profound effect on, on those companies. Uh, and the nice thing about that right. is there's no maintenance cost involved. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Right. <laughs> okay. Well, um, so if Beyond Agile, sure. If I was uh, uh, Beyond uh, Agile, is, in the elevator. I, I would go back to that notion of aiming it? before you fire, right? You okay. to build something effectively, Agile will will help you, but you also want to build the right thing effectively. And so to do that, you have to um, incorporate behavioral science to truly understand who you're building for, and then the team who is implementing has to understand that they are building this software for people and the business facilitating that construction has to understand that the team is made of people, right? And those people need to have strong social and communication and respect bonds so that they can effectively make the right decisions. Thank you. Okay, great. Rob, thank you very much. I appreciate it.